So the reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, and it's verses 1 to 16. And I hope you'll be able to hear it and follow it. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with uh, with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Amen. Well, hello, everyone. How are you doing? It is really good to see so many friendly faces, and even better to see loads of faces I don't know. Um, it is really good uh, to be back in uh, Carmoney. Last time I was here, I think, was about a year ago. So it's been quite a wee while um, since I've been out here. And um, Stuart asked me during the week, he's like, would you give the congregation an update about what's going on at Central, okay? So I hate doing this, but that's what we're going to do, right? So you're going to get the Central update, okay? Some of you will know, some of you won't know. Um, myself and my wife, Joy, who's over there, I think, trying to get my son to nap right about now. I have that effect. I'm really good at getting my son to go to sleep. Hopefully not you this morning. Um, my wife and I, along with seven other people, we, we planted Central into Belfast City Centre in 2016. Um, at that point in the MAC, which is like an arts venue in the cathedral quarter of the city, um, we, there was just very few of us meeting then. We now find ourselves in the old May Street Presbyterian Church building. Right about now, there will be between 250 and 300 people gathering there this morning uh, for worship, where Stuarty is. And um, this morning, just 
just, it's quite easy to do an update whenever you could, you just, I'm just going to tell you what's been going on in the last week in church. So this morning we're commissioning four new small group communities. That'll be uh, 13 communities we'll now have dotted around the city. Just this last week we've had a girls' night, a student ministry with about 200 students on Wednesday night, a family hangout all afternoon yesterday, and a free student lunch after church today. Uh, there is lots going on around the life of Central at the minute. We've experienced huge growth and deep hunger. And if I'm honest, we're pretty stretched um, as a team. It's just a small team of us there that lead and work in the church. We will hopefully have some new job roles coming up over the next number of months. And we're already at the point of talking about how do we add more services to church on a Sunday. We would covet your prayers um, as we navigate the challenges of life in the city centre and the challenges for so many people at this uh, in this day and age. And as always, we're so very grateful for Carmoney, our parent church, uh, the sending church that sent us out, released us, resourced us to do that as we went. We're so very grateful for you all, um, our church family. Is that okay? That's your update. All right. If you want more, you can come and speak to me afterwards. Um, so... It's really good to be with you. Uh, the opportunity to do pulpit swap. Stuarty's given me a whacking great reading to jump into today. There is lots going on in the reading that Len had just read for us. In the series that you guys have called Clarity in the Mystery here at Carmoney, working our way through the book of Ephesians. And today, this particular block is all about, the title is The Power of One. And as a child, okay, and I recognize there'll be a few more people in the room who recognize what I'm saying, okay, growing up in a manse was quite an interesting life experience, okay? From missionaries from the far-flung corners of the globe showing up for Sunday dinner to, and their like photo slideshows that came along with it, Sarah is nodding her head, uh, to the PW or the PWA, as it was known in our day, having their annual meetings in our house, okay? At one particular year, my brother and I decided it was gonna be a great idea to freeze the driveway. It was a very wintry night. So we froze the driveway, which was maybe some of the worst trouble we've ever, the best thing about it was Esther was meant to be in charge of us that particular night when we nearly killed several older ladies. But the tray bakes, right? The tray bakes. I mean, my first experience of a Mars bar and apple sandwich was thanks to the PW. To broken people who showed up at your door in desperate life circumstances, just looking for help. It was an interesting life experience, but I so remember one particular element of it as a five or a six-year-old boy listening to my dad take phone calls all the time, and he, those phone calls would nearly always be marked by one particular thing, okay? Uh, would, they would always be marked by a line, something like, all right, well, it was good to hear from you, brother, or oh, yes, brother, okay? And as a five-year-old boy, I remember thinking, how many brothers does my dad have, right? Like, where are all these brothers that I have never met? Like, what is going on? And it took me some time at that stage in my life to realize that we, he, was part of something so much bigger than just our nuclear family. He was part of something way bigger than just the family we had here in the house, right? That my dad, with brothers in every corner of this country and further afield, was indicating his belonging to and togetherness in this fellowship of difference that we call the church. And the thing about that fellowship of difference is it is called to be one. We're called to be one. 
The trouble with oneness, though, is it's hard, isn't it? Oneness is hard. Football chat, right? I'm sorry, those of you that don't like football. I'm a Manchester United fan. I'm just putting it out there, right? Liverpool fans, it's nice to hear from you for that brief 20 minutes where you crawled out from whatever rocks you've been hiding under all season during the week, okay? You're all very quiet again, and it's lovely, right? But Eric Ten Hag, you beautiful, bald man, right? He has done a wondrous job at Manchester United, okay? Take this, for example. Uh, last year, following the 1-1 draw with Southampton, okay, the punditry remarks were, their Manchester United work rate off the ball is shambolic. Their tactical plan is poor. And Danny Murphy would go on to say, there is no togetherness in this squad, okay? That was one year ago. Fast forward a year to this week's 2-1 win against Barcelona and Eric Ten Hag's comments where there was a good feeling, that unified feeling, we are really together. And right at the center of this upturn that all of these kind of commentators and pundits and ex-footballers are remarking is something's happened behind the scenes. There's been an enormous amount of work that has gone on to turn this group from a bunch of people who obviously didn't want to play together to a group of people who are now one. And funnily enough, that's exactly what Paul says to the Ephesian church. See, chapter four in the book of Ephesians is this kind of turning point in, in kind of the narrative of the book, okay? Um, up until this point, okay, you've been reading about and hearing about the most astonishing and beautiful picture of a whole new society that is being created called the church. John Stott, a Bible commentator, he says this about it. God is creating something entirely new, not just a new life for individuals, for a new society. Paul sees an alienated humanity being reconciled, a fractured humanity being united, even a new humanity being created. It is a magnificent vision. And up until now, okay, these first three chapters of Ephesians, it's, it's been all about that vision, hasn't it? That vision of this new society, this new humanity. But now in chapter four, the narrative changes from theology to practicality. It changes from theology to practicality. We tend to think of things like being one, right, as kind of an airy-fairy or a, a vague or a peripheral thing, right? We're just meant to get on with the job, right? The church just needs to get on with the job. But Paul is really saying two things about this oneness that he so strongly speaks into. One, that oneness isn't theory. This isn't theology. This is practicality he's talking about. Oneness isn't theory. This is a vision that shifts from new society to new standards. This is something we have to be and do. And secondly, that it's important. Actually, Paul says it's central. Look at what he says in verse one. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. In other words, that this calling to be all that Paul has that vision for, that new humanity, that new society. How do we live worthy of that? And he's speaking to us corporately, by the way, not us as individuals, us, the body of Christ. How do we do that? When we live out unity, that's this week, and purity, which I'm assuming Sturdy will get to next week. If we're gonna be all that the church is meant to be, then we have to be one. Paul is saying that without the oneness, we can't be what we're meant to be. Without the new standards, we can't be the new society. One, 
We're called to be one. So what is this? What is the power of one? Well, I think there's three things from this passage that Paul is saying, okay, about the power of one. And it's these, unity, diversity, and maturity. Paul's talking about unity, diversity, and maturity. And the first of those is unity, okay? Let's just read these, these first few verses of Ephesians 4. It says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. And then all. We live in a fragmented world. I don't think it takes me to say that for you to know that. Our world is fragmented, isn't it? No matter how hard adverts for things like Facebook will tell you that we're more connected than we ever have been, actually our world is maybe more disconnected than we ever have been. Trends in major cities suggest that the most popular form of dwelling in major cities around the world is now single occupancy apartments, not designed for any more than one person to live in them. A friend of ours who leads a church in Melbourne in Australia, the last time we saw him, he said that in that particular city, the Salvation Army has this new and very busy ministry, which is a ministry to people who die in apartments alone and no one knows they've died and nobody does anything about a funeral. These are not old people as well, by the way. This is people of every generation. Every generation. Our world is more fragmented than ever. In early 2000, the press carried a story about a man called John J. Davies. He was a 58-year-old man. He was wheelchair-bound, and he lived on his own. And the story was that John J. Davies set his own armchair on fire in his house, okay? Speaking to the press afterwards, because he got ticketed. This was America, right? He got ticketed for this. Speaking to the press, he said this, I set the chair on fire because I'm here by myself. I was afraid, but I didn't care. I wanted to get attention. I set the fire so someone would get me out of here. Stories like that are ever more common. Maybe you know stories like that. Maybe there's people in your life. Maybe as part of the compassion ministry of this church, you have worked with people who are just like that. Our world is fragmented and it's disconnected. There isn't much oneness out there if we're looking for it. But then we think about the church too, right? And is oneness very often what we would have said about the church? By best estimates, there are 45,000 active denominations in the world today. 45,000 denominations. Just this last week, the Global South Fellowship of Anglicans, a group which makes up about a quarter of the total provinces of the Anglican church, said they were breaking away following the decisions from Synod. And in 2018... PCI voted to break off our relationship with the Church of Scotland. We split and split and split and split. In the history of the church, in debates about perceived truth or theology, we have time and time again chosen truth over unity. And yet, Paul says, unity is a command. It's a command. It's an apostolic command. This is what it says in verse three, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. This is not something light. 
This is not one of these things that we just, well, it was was kind of a nice sermon today, but I'll just kind of relegate that to the stuff that doesn't really apply to me, right? This is not light. This unity is a huge deal in the New Testament, okay? Paul talks about it again and again and again and again to lots of his letters to the church. Be one, be one, be one. And Paul says that our oneness, okay, it's rooted in our faith and belonging to a God who is one, okay? This is what it says. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One, again and again and again. Seven times he says the word one in just two verses. Seven times. Let me give you it in a more accessible form because I realize that's a ginormous kind of theological statement, okay? But let me give it to you in a more kind of clear manner just so you know what that's saying, okay? The one Father creates the one family. That's everyone who believes in Jesus. Then the one Lord Jesus creates the one faith, hope, and baptism. And finally, the one Spirit creates the one body, and that's the church. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it like this. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. This is our call. To be one as God is one. There is a deep oneness here, far greater than our preferences, far greater than our grievances, far greater than our traditions, far greater than any denominational badge over the door of any church. We are called to be no less one inside this building and outside this building than the Father is to the Son and to the Spirit. That's how one we are to be. And Paul calls the early church to unity over and over again in his letters, okay? Why? Because it's hard, right? Oneness is hard. Just ask any married couple about how one they were in their first year of marriage, right? Maybe their 50th year of marriage is the same, okay? Maybe you're going, no, it's still hard, right? But being one is hard. It takes work, doesn't it? Paul says that the key to this work, it's not structure. It's not just like bind them and chuck them all into a room and make sure that they're all there together. It's not structure. It's not, it's posture. It's character work. It's heart work. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. These are the traits of a church who wants to be one. Humility, gentleness. Jesus uses the term meekness in Matthew 11. That's kind of probably closer to what the word actually meant. But humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and love. These are the family traits of a family who are one. And just like that famous reading from 1 Corinthians 13 that we read at so many Weddings, you know, love is patient, love is kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast. You know that reading. We've all heard that reading. And just like that reading, I don't know about you, but if you are married and you go to a wedding and you sit through it and you listen to that reading, okay, some part of you, as you hear them read that over the couple, thinks inside, yep, you're going to need it, right? You're going to need those things. If this, if this marriage is going to stick, you're going to need it. And just like that So Paul is speaking to this new society, the church, and saying humility, 
gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, love. You're going to need it. You're going to need it. I hear so often this word community in the church. We actually had it as one of our things written on the walls for years and years here, right? It's kind of a Christian buzzword in this day and age. And the thing is, right, that it often brings with it our own ideas of what community should be like, doesn't it? Like we have our own idea of what community, like if I was in a community, this is what it would look like. If I had community, this is how it would feel. This is how it would work. We have this picture of what it would be like. And very often because we have this picture, we end up disappointed with the one that we're in, don't we? You know what? Do you know what community looks like? Look around. You want to know what community looks like? Look around. Community isn't some abstract idea. It's these people in the room right now. You want to know who your community is? Here they are. Here they are. And now you know why you're going to need humility, patience, bearing with one another, and love, right? The German writer, theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote this. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. We need to lay aside our dream of community and pick up humility, patience, bearing with one another, meekness and love for the people in the room. Look around. This is who you're called to. This is the community of the church here in Carn Money. And this is the work of the heart you will need to do to be one. The power of one is first about unity. But secondly, it's about diversity. We just read on in verses 7 to 12. It says this. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. In life, uh, we tend to move towards people who are like us, don't we? It's like it's just a thing that we have, isn't it? We tend to move towards people who are like us, have the same interests, same tastes, same stage in life, like whatever it is. We, we move towards people that are like us, okay? This particular image, okay, this picture is kind of like my nightmares of uni days, right? Boot-cut jeans and awful brown shoes, right? This just makes me think of every night out I was ever out on and, you know, all the boys from Oma showed up looking like this, right? <laughs> True story. But the thing is, I now lead a church full of young adults who are apparently cool, and they all look exactly the same. Like, they walk in on a Sunday morning, and it's like the uniform, right? I'm like, I didn't get the memo. They all look the same, right? Uh, And that's kind of the thing about the world in which we live. We move towards people like us, don't we? We move towards people like us. And yet the picture that Paul gives us of the church, it's not bland. It's not beige. It's not one type of person. It's full of color and diversity. 
And in order to understand it, okay, there's that bit at the start that maybe it's hard to understand that bit when it says he ascended on high and all that stuff. What, what Paul's actually doing is he's quoting from Psalm 68. And to give you kind of the shorthand of what was going on with Psalm 68, what he's really saying is it's, it's a reference to the kings of old, okay? And to the kings of old, uh, to those who conquered, they reserved the right to give the spoils of their conquering to whoever they wanted, okay? That was kind of a thing. And very often, the spoils of their conquering were given to their friends, the people that they liked. So if they conquered a city and they got gold and silver, or women or whatever it was, they gave them to the people that were their friends. They gave gifts. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. That Jesus who conquered by dying on the cross, going to the grave, rising again, defeating death and sin and shame, now he gives gifts to you and to I. And this diversity is a gift. It's pure gift. We need to get it into our heads that people who are not like us, gifts that are not like ours, they're not a challenge. They're pure gift. They are pure gift to the church. And so what are those gifts? Well, verse 11 unpacks the gifts. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So the gifts, I know you guys maybe two, three years ago did a series on these gifts, okay? Uh, but just to recap, I'll give you the shorthand of what each of these gifts are. Apostle, this is a dynamic, pioneering gift. This is the gift of always kind of thinking and believing forward. Maybe that's you this morning. Prophet, this is about speaking into the church, calling it to loyalty and faithfulness to Jesus. This is the gift that reminds us to be who we are meant to be. Evangelist, this is the storyteller. This is the gift of being naturally infectious, bringing people together and into what God is doing in and through the church. Shepherd, the gift of walking with people, the gift of maintaining and developing healthy community and healthy followers of Jesus, the one who nurtures maturity, defends against fracture, and teacher, the gift of guiding and discerning, the gift of teaching and instructing this generation in a way and with words that it can understand, not only for them, but so we can pass it on to the next generation. This is the diversity of the church. Christ gave those five types of gifts and you all have some of those gifts. No matter who you are this morning, no matter how unworthy of any of those gifts, no matter how undiscovered those gifts may be, no matter how burned out those gifts may be, you have one or more of those gifts wherever you sit this morning. And you might not know it, and you might not believe it, or you might not be active, but each and every one of you here today has a gift, pure gift, and a part to play in this church being all it can be. Every one of you. Everyone. And this is a couple of outworkings, okay? The first of them is this, that every single one of you has a part to play in the ministry of the church. We call this every member ministry, okay? 
And this is the beauty of the gifts that are given to us each, that each of us gets to be both giver and receiver, gets to be both leader and follower. Eugene Peterson says it like this, each gift is an invitation and provides the means to participate in the work of Jesus. How incredible is that? Every gift, the gifts that you have, it's an invitation to play your part in what Jesus is doing through the church here in Newton Abbey. And what's it for? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The ministry of the church is our job. It's our job. It's not one person's job. It's our job. It's not the job of the few or the paid. The ministry of the church is the gift, the invitation, and the work of the whole church. But secondly, what your church leader's job is, right? It has implications for your job, and it has implications for your church leader's job, right? Stuart is pretty good, right? And easy on the eye. But (laughs) there is a view in the mainstream church that the church leader's job or the paid employee's job at the church is to do and be everything. And I want to say to you today that that's not in the New Testament. That's rubbish. To be and do everything, that he does the ministry and we all watch on, right? He's the minister after all, that's his name. He does the ministry, we just watch on. We maybe pray for him, okay? Throw up a wee prayer so that he can do the ministry. That's not it. The implications of the diversity of gifts in this room is that we do the ministry. And Stuart's job, well, John Stott, he says it like this, one who helps and encourages all God's people to discover, develop, and exercise their gifts. We do the ministry. Everyone plays their part. Everyone uses the gifts that have been given to you and to I. Please hear me. This isn't the church leaders union, right? This isn't me trying to get Stuart, you know, an easier ride in life. I'm not, okay? This is the invitation to use the gifts poured out on each one of us all to participate in what Jesus is doing through his church here in Newton Abbey. And we can't fully, truly be all Jesus has for this church if we don't. Our participation is a gift, and it's that important. This is about unity, diversity, and finally, it's about maturity. It's about maturity. And so it turns out that this unity and diversity is for something, right? It has a purpose. And in John's Gospel, chapter 17, okay, he records one of Jesus' prayers, okay? And and it's called Jesus Prays for All Believers, okay? And this is what it says. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. There's that word again. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you give me, that they may be one, there's that word again, as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In other words, Jesus' prayer is may we be one that the world might know him and his love for them. John Wimber used to say of this prayer, the good news is that Jesus is praying for us 
The bad news is that we'll need it. And that's the good news of this prayer. But here's the thing. Jesus' prayer and Paul's writing to the Ephesians, it isn't that the purpose of all this unity and diversity is for us to go wide, okay? I don't want you to misconstrue what's being said in this prayer. It's not like, okay, go wide. Immediately go wide, okay? It's actually for us to go deep. It's for us to go deep. When we planted Central, Carl Martin, who lots of you remember, he gave us this prophetic word, which was to go after deep and wide and far would look after themselves. And Paul is saying exactly the same thing. This is what he says. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does the work. In other words, discipleship is the means by which we grow to be mature. And what is the goal of discipleship? To be like Jesus. Christ-likeness is the goal of discipleship. Not more knowledge, not more showing up for stuff at church. Christ-likeness. And those things might follow from your Christ-likeness, but Christ-likeness is the goal of all discipleship. That's the whole point. John Stott phrases it like this. The church's goal is not Christ, but its own maturity and unity, which comes from knowing, trusting, and growing up into Christ. Here's the thing. The church's goal is not the church. The church doesn't exist to perpetuate the church. That's not what it's for. The church and its goal is Christ-likeness. The goal of the church is your and my Christ-likeness. It's that we may grow as one body, exercising gifts, growing to be mature, growing to be like him. And here's the thing. We need each other to get there. We can't do it on our own. We need each other. We have this guy who's been coming to our church for the last little while. He's uh, from Ghana. His name is Nana. And he, that rhymed, sorry. That wasn't meant to be like that. <laughs> Sounds like a football song. Anyway, um, he's on our welcome team. And um, I hope I'm not stereotyping there, but my experience of all of the African people that we have in our church in our, uh, and on our teams at church at Central is that they bring with them this incredible joy and perspective on life. And he, he doesn't know this at all, but um, you don't know how many times over the last kind of six months or so that I've arrived at church weary, uh, I guess wrestling with things that are going on in people's lives, wrestling with knowing where we're going as a church, just personally struggling. It's been a pretty difficult couple of years from our end. And then Nana arrives, and with him just comes this bundle of positivity and joy and love for Jesus and he walks through the doors and he throws his arms around you and it's how is it going my brother and let me tell you what Jesus has been doing this week and he just he just goes for it and he speaks into my life and into his heart into my heart you don't know how often his welcome has lifted and encouraged me more than he will ever know we need each other if we are going to become Christ 
like in this life. It's that encouraging word. Or it can also be that difficult conversation. It's that weeping alongside someone who is broken. It's that text message when you know somebody's got something coming up. It's that cooked meal. It's that showing up unannounced with some brownies that you've baked. It's that invite out for coffee. We need one another. Because as Paul alludes, the world in which we live is an incredibly powerful discipling environment. Sadly, for many people, more effective than the church. And Paul is saying that that needs to shift. We need to grow in maturity, but maturity is hard. It's hard in our world to grow in Christ-likeness. Just ask Kate Forbes, the SNP politician, who was told by many people on Twitter and beyond this last week that her views and values not only had no place in politics, but that she had no place in a modern Scotland. I've mentioned him already today, but I love the work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor and theologian, okay, and he led an absolutely astonishing life. He got a PhD at 21, and Karl Barth, who's one of the greatest theologians of all time, read his PhD, which he wrote at that age, and said it was a theological marvel. Like, how bright do you need to be for him to say that? Anyway, and the big message of his life, okay, was God's presence amongst his people. And in his time, he lived and worked around that time of kind of the rise of Nazi Germany in Germany. And he became deeply disillusioned with the German church, like the national church of, of the nation. And they became absorbed by the Nazi regime, okay? Hitler kind of, in many ways, asked them to worship him, right? They were deeply watered down. They lost all their power and influence. They traded it all for power and influence with Hitler and, and the Nazi party. And so he started his own movement, his own church. It was called the Confessing Church in Germany at the time. And it basically oriented itself around the belief that Jesus and not Hitler was the head of the church. And the church, because of this, came under huge pressure, okay? And they started with kind of low-level persecution, and then it ramped up. So in the beginning, it was they shut down financial giving, and then membership to the church, and then eventually they just banned them from meeting altogether, and so Bonhoeffer starts this kind of underground uh, training seminary for people who believed that Christians could stand firm against the pressures of their culture and they could follow Jesus. And it was in this context where he wrote the two books that made him most famous, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together. So he founds this seminary in a place called Finkenwald in Germany. It was really small. It's like a nowhere place, really. It's not anywhere of any real significance. But the reality was the seminary was pretty hardcore, okay? Like if you're going to follow Jesus truly in times like that, then you're going to need to be pretty hardcore. And so it was. It was created to build exactly the sort of community and Jesus following that Paul himself believed in. In fact, some of Bonhoeffer's best friends at the time thought it was too much, right? And so at a point in his life, he'd forged this relationship with the Church of England Vicar, this vicar was deeply concerned, thought, well, they're going to kill you. And actually, in the end, the Nazis did kill him. But this Church of England vicar, he, he goes over to Germany to see Bonhoeffer. And his aim when he went was to try and like, dissuade him from what he's doing. He's like, this is just too much. No one will sign up to this. No one will do it. It's not possible. You need to stop, right? And he has this conversation with him. Bonhoeffer listens to it all. And it's recorded in his autobiography that what happens is next, is that he says to this other vicar, he says, come with me. 
And they go from the house where Finkenwald was and they get on a boat. And they row this boat, they row it across a lake. And across the lake they get to a hill and they climb the hill. And the two of them climb the hill to the top of it. And from the top of that hill they could see an area where the Nazis were training troops. And it was just ahead of them. And they could see planes taking off and landing. They could see tanks driving around. They could see troops running drills and all of that sort of stuff. It was this immense show of strength just over the side of the hill. And Bonhoeffer speaks to him and he spoke about a new generation of Germans who were in training, whose disciplines were formed, and he quote, for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. And then Bonhoeffer turns And he points to the little seminary on the other side of the hill, like nothing. There's like 20 people there. Nobody knows about it. Nobody cares. And he points to the little seminary. And then he points back to this massive Nazi army on the other side. And this is what he says. He says that this, the seminary, this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. And do you know something? It was It was. This was stronger than that. And that's what all this is for. That's what the power of one is for. It's that our unity and diversity and maturity might grow so that we, we, not I or any single one of you, but all of us together, united, diverse and mature, might truly look like Christ might display his character and his beauty and his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his truth and his justice. We might display those things to the world in which we live, that this might be stronger than that. Not one of us can do that, but we, when we are one, we can. Scott McKnight, just as I close, he phrases it like this. The church is God's world-changing social experiment of bringing unlikes and difference to the table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. When this happens, we show the world what love, justice, peace, reconciliation, and life together are designed by God to be. What a picture. And what a vision. And that's the power of one. I'm just going to close and um, invite Esther and the the guys to come and lead us in worship. That is what we're doing, isn't it? Sorry, I'm a tourist here. Um, But just as as we come to do that, um, I kind of was thinking about this over the last couple of days and probably thinking a lot about how, you know, what Paul is calling us to is no little thing. And it's no easy thing. To be one in a church this large is not easy. And so very often the question becomes, you know, how do we do that? You know, what do we need to run to do that? Like, what do we need to start? How do we get all these people together so we all like each other and become one, okay? But actually, to be honest, what I kind of felt this week when I was preaching is that or preparing for this, is that um, our oneness doesn't come by looking at each other. In fact, in many ways, our oneness comes from getting our eyes off one another and getting our eyes onto Jesus. The deeper that we go into him, 
the closer we are able to draw to one another because all of a sudden there is something deeply significant to each of us which bonds us in a much greater way than just our preferences and our shared interests and shared passions and all of that sort of stuff. And the the writer Leonard Sweet, he has this quote that I love. And it says this, that I only want to write one thing over the doorposts to my heart and to my life. Jesus Christ lives here. That's the heart of unity. Is that in this place, Jesus Christ lives here. In your life and in my life. And that we, in our surrender to, and knowledge of, and embracing of, and following this living God, this one who is real and risen, this one who is present in this place and in our lives, this one who is active, This one who goes before us and comes beside us and goes behind us into whatever the challenges are. That we might be able to say one thing about our life. Not that we have it all together or that our life is sweet. We might be in a hard season today. But that Jesus Christ lives here. Jesus Christ lives here. And so I felt really, as I was thinking about this, that there are maybe two, two groups of people in the church. I'm not sure which one it is, but I felt the Lord prompt me on this. That there are people here today and Jesus Christ doesn't live here. And maybe this is the moment that he does. Now you've been holding it off, fighting it, wrestling, struggling. You've been saying like, nope, I'm being carried along. But if I'm honest, I have no intention of letting Jesus Christ live here. I got issues, I got questions. Maybe this is the moment that we commit ourselves to him and that Jesus Christ might come and live here so that you can experience his love, beauty, mercy, truth, forgiveness, that all of the life of God might come into your life and you might begin to play your part in the unity and diversity and maturity of the church. But secondly, maybe there's some of you for whom life has just got too much stuff in your life, stuff going on, You just got distracted. And if you're honest with yourself, there's other things in your life that have been much more important and have much more readily held your gaze than Jesus. And maybe this is a moment of recommitment for you. You want to say all over again, Jesus, come in. Come Holy Spirit, come in. Come have your way. Come in to stay. That you might know once again that Jesus Christ lives here. And so I'm just going to ask us just to bow our heads where we are now. I'm going to pray. And if either of those two things are you today, that this is your moment, the moment where you turn to him and you ask Jesus to come into your life, you want to give your life to him today. Or if you're here today and this is a moment of recommitment, of reconnection, of recalibration, a moment where you say all over again, Jesus, that I am yours and you're mine. And I want to refix my eyes on you. That I want to turn my eyes upon Jesus. I want to look full in his wonderful face. That the things of this life may go strangely dim in the wonder of his glory and grace. If either of those two things are you today, 
I just wonder if you'd stand where you are. I know that's bold. And I know that it's about to take courage for you to do it. But would you just stand where you are while our heads are bowed? Thank you. I just wonder if the rest of you would stand too. Keep your eyes closed. Would you stand? We're going to stand with these men and women that are standing now. And we stand today as one church, called to be one, as surely as the Lord is one. And we just pray, come Holy Spirit, would you come on us now? Spirit of God, would you move in this place? Would you come in these men and women who have stood this day? Jesus, I want to pray for those of us that today are turning their lives to you for the first time. Who want to give themselves to you. Who want to say that they are so thankful, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross, that you died for me, that you rose again for me, that you ascended again for me. And that one day you're coming back again. Thank you, Jesus. Who want to say sorry for the sin and stuff and the way that we live our lives. And we want to say, please come in, Jesus. Please enter my life today. Come in and come and have your way. And I want to pray today for men and women who want to reconnect with you. Who want to say all over again, Jesus, that I'm yours and that you're mine. We are fixing our eyes once more on the author and perfecter of our faith today. Jesus, we want to be able to say that Jesus Christ lives here. And so Jesus, we recommit to you all over again. Come Holy Spirit, fill us up. Equip us for the job of unity. Equip us for the work of diversity of our gifts. God, I want to pray that you would call out those gifts in us today. The apostolic gifting the prophetic gifting, the evangelistic gifting, the shepherd gifting, the teacher gifting. God, would you call them out of us today and give us courage to pursue them. Give us courage to use them. And God, would you call all of us to maturity in you. That we might grow to become someone whose faith is stronger than that stronger than whatever it is that life throws at us, stronger than whatever the narratives of this world are, that we might truly, truly go after the character of God so that we might live lives at the contrast of God. Come Holy Spirit, do what you're doing. Work in us to become like you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.